I want to talk a little bit about the importance of this program for me and the emphasis on precision medicine and trust. There are a lot of reasons why we should not trust what's being presented here today. That was Reverend Dr. Calvin Butts speaking in 2018 to his New York congregation about a precision medicine initiative established during the Obama administration. Reverend Butts believes that the African-American community is at a crossroads, where to benefit from the fruits of scientific developments, especially in genetics, we're going to have to address the deep distrust that many African-Americans feel toward an American medical establishment that has mistreated and even deceived them for years. If we can't establish new levels of trust and bridge these divides, the historical marginalization of African-Americans within medicine stands to further compound the health inequities they already face. This is Prognosis Ohio, Ohio's healthcare policy and politics report. I'm Dan Skinner. Dr. Taslim Padamsi is Assistant Professor of Health Services Management and Policy in the College of Public Health at Ohio State University. A sociologist by training, Dr. Padamsi brings tools from sociology and women's studies to bear on public health problems, especially at the intersections of social inequality, public policy, and healthcare. Dr. Padamsi is the principal investigator for two major ongoing projects, but the one we're going to talk about today is a mixed-method study of how diverse women at elevated risk for breast cancer make prevention decisions and the effects of these decision-making processes on physical and psychosocial health. While Taslim explains the project during our conversation, I think it's worth providing just a bit of context. Though we have some great institutions in Ohio that bring tremendous expertise and passion to cancer care, the fact remains that cancer rates in Ohio are high. But there's also a significant disparity within these rates. Though gaps between white and black mortality rates from cancer have begun to narrow, this is not true, at least not yet, for breast cancer, the focus of Dr. Padamsi's work. But while this is the better known part of the story, inequality and mortality rates, the study that she and her colleagues have conducted have a different message. Namely, that even if we have all sorts of ways of minimizing risk in the development of cancer, this doesn't mean that these tools and approaches will necessarily benefit all people in the same way. In fact, there are often significant differences in how different groups think about their risk, their options, their prospects of recovery, and even what they expect from medical professionals and institutions. The study we discussed reminds us not only of the more cliched truism that communication is one of the most important aspects of healthcare, which all healthcare researchers know at this point, but that communication may be different for different groups, which means that medical professionals need to develop culturally competent ways of communicating. They need to understand not only their patients' histories, but the history of their patients' communities in relation to medicine. For example, white patients often have quite different experiences with medical professionals and institutions than do African American, Latino, and other groups. Understanding and engaging these histories needs to be part of clinical approaches if we're going to provide quality options to all patients. Taslim Padamsi, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. So you're a researcher at Ohio State, a sociologist, and recently published a study called Layers of Information, Interacting Constraints on Breast Cancer Risk Management by High-Risk African-American Women, which you conducted with your colleagues, Rachel Meadows and Megan Hills. I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about the context of the study and what your research is about. Yeah, uh, sure. So... There are there is a population of uh, women of all racial and ethnic groups uh, in the United States and elsewhere who know that they are at high risk for breast cancer. Uh, and we know that there are risk reducing methods out there 
for these women at high risk uh, that are sort of medical type methods that have been designed specifically to reduce the risk of getting breast cancer among the women who are most likely to get it. So these are women who know that there is a genetic mutation in their family or have had their own genetic mutation uh, diagnosed or who've experienced cancer cases in their own family. They know that those cases have been there and, and someone at some point has conveyed to them or they have learned somehow that that is associated with them being at increased risk themselves. For these high-risk women, they can be faced with a range of decisions about what they're going to do to grapple with that risk. Uh, so what they're going to do could involve things like uh, fairly aggressive measures such as prophylactic surgery, we call it, or preventive surgery that reduces your risk of uh, getting breast cancer. And there are some medications you can take that will reduce your risk of getting breast cancer. And there are enhanced screening methods um, that you can use, which will not actually reduce your risk, but would ensure that we catch a breast cancer early, which would be a great thing because, you know, nowadays breast cancer treatment is quite effective. So we know that these options exist. Um, and we also know that a lot of women don't use them. Uh, some women do, a lot of women don't. And uh, in particular, we don't know why they don't use them. Is it that women aren't using these options because they know all about them and they understand them fully and they just have decided that these are not the right choices for their lives? That would be a good reason for women not to be using these options. Um, the bad reasons are things like women have never heard of these things in the first place, or they've heard of them, decided they would like to do something and cannot afford it or they have decided they would like to do something and there's some other constraints, such as a partner or spouse doesn't want them to or, and won't let them or uh, some other kind of uh, social constraint around them. So in order to sort of serve the interests of high-risk women in general and try to create, hopefully, an ideal situation in which women can be maximally informed, empowered, make the choices they want, and then act on those choices, uh, we feel like it's really essential to understand how are women ma making these choices in the first place? What are the pieces of the puzzle that go into women making choices to do or to not do these various things? Uh, A, so that we can understand where in that process there may be problems, and B, so that we can try to ameliorate those problems. Your study kind of disaggregates a, f a few different threads by which this happens. I mean, in the one case, there seems to be, in some cases, there seems to be a lack of awareness of the different options. In other cases, there seem to be kind of patterns, especially among African-American women in the context of your study, where African-American women are unique in the way they approach decision-making. How do you think about the different kind of variables that go into distinguishing how white women and African-American women approach uh, various options they might have with regard to their own breast cancer risk? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are multiple ways that we could disaggregate those decisions um, and take them apart. I think the focus of this particular paper is to imagine that a decision has been made um, and to then work backward from the moment of making that decision to what would have ha occurred before that and what would have occurred before that and what would have occurred before that. So we sort of pull out three layers of decision making. So closest to the end point where you've made a decision before you make that decision, you would have needed to know that there was a decision to be made there, right? So if you want to decide whether or not to have a genetic test, for instance, you would need to know that a genetic test exists and you would need other more specific information about it, like uh, how would I go about getting it? Can I afford it? Will my insurance cover it? What will it tell me? And so on. And then 
underlying that layer is a, a, a very specific types of information is a is a, another layer that's more general information um, about how to think about risk in general, uh, how to think about prevention or risk management. And then under that is an even more general layer that's about uh, whether you perceive of yourself at risk at all, whether you think risk is something that could be controlled, whether you have the sort of emotional energy bandwidth money to be addressing these issues at all. So we kind of try to back up from that decision and organize all the things that could go into it uh, according to this kind of timeline of in, in a woman's actual life, what would contribute to lead up to being able to make a decision uh, in the end. And I really love the focus on decision-making which doesn't usually get this much of attention. I mean, I was just noticing, for example, just today, and here we are talking on February 14th, um, this big study released by the American Cancer Society showing that you know some cancer disparities and outcomes between African-Americans and whites have really narrowed. But breast cancer is not one of those areas. And also, there doesn't seem to be the focus on the gendering focus that your study brings to bear in, in trying to understand What's going on behind the scenes and thinking about, do I even want to know if I have a genetic predisposition? Or maybe as you um, show, you and your colleagues show in the paper, maybe there are so many different things that are uh, being addressed that this individual is concerned about that they deprioritize thinking about you know risk for breast cancer down the line because they're focused on other things in the short run. Yeah. I, yeah. Those are great points. I think that um, we do have an explicit focus on decision-making uh, because- this is an area, I think a lot of medical care, but in particular here, this is an area where it's really clear that in order to do something, you have to make a decision and, and who's making those decisions. It's really women themselves who are making those decisions. Um, and so we need to know, uh, and thinking about decision-making as a process, I think is very important because that is how, that is often not how we study decision-making. First of all, we usually, we often study decisions, which is to say, will you do something? Won't you? Did you? Didn't you? Yes, no. Um, as opposed to a process of how did you get to a particular end point and thinking of a choice as an end point of a process that precedes it. This is probably coming from my background as a sociologist where I think about big systems issues and I tend to ask open-ended type questions about what is causing something to happen without a lot of preconceived notions about uh, what the answer is going to be. So I did focus specifically on women. Um, so the study is about women. But it's also, other than that, it's reasonably wide open that women could have told us that it had to do with their healthcare access or that it had to do with money or that it had to do with their partners uh, or some many other things, right? And so the objective was to figure out from women's own perspectives, how are these decisions built to figure out uh, how can they be built as positively as possible and how can we facilitate that? One of the things that really struck me about your findings was this piece about primary care and the role for primary care physicians as opposed to specialists of various sorts, where African-Americans seem, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, uh, but African-Americans in your study seem to have these longer uh, trusting relationships with primary care physicians as opposed to specialists, or maybe not access to the specialists, which leads them to work with primary care physicians who either might not be as well-versed in some of these risk management uh, approaches or uh, might be hesitant to wade into them to offer the kind of real deep um, thinking about 
long-term oncological risk management. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think you've done a great job of capturing the complexity of this trust issue. Uh, we have a lot of evidence of all kind, from all kinds of past studies uh, indicating that there is a gap between whites and blacks in the U.S. in terms of their trust of medical institutions and healthcare providers. And this is about how those, and, and of course, that gap in trust is coming from some very real places, right, having to do with the history of how African-Americans have been treated in healthcare and, and the present day evidence about how African-Americans are treated in healthcare and how that is often different and lesser than how whites are treated um, in healthcare environments. So it's not coming from nowhere. It's not a made up problem. Um, it's a problem that people, it, it's a it's a phenomenon that's coming from people's real life experience and, and what they know about recent history. And that phenomenon plays out in a variety of ways. I think um, I often get asked about racism in healthcare and that obviously is an issue that people are concerned about. We know that there are disparities in how people are treated when they're actually in the care situation, but it's deeper than that too, right? Because of exactly what you said about primary care providers. So uh, this is a small study uh, and this is something that I'm hoping to be able to verify with a larger sample that we're currently collecting. But what we think we see is that African-American women are less likely, well, we know we see that African-American women are less likely to see a specialist, but also that they are more trusting of their primary care providers. So that primary care is really considered the kind of medical interaction that a lot of these women would like to have uh, at, because they can build long-term relationships with people and those relationships involve the opportunity to build trust and uh, and to then rely on someone you trust to help you make your healthcare choices. You even uh, note in the paper, for example, that uh, sometimes these are familial relationships that, you know, f yeah. physicians will be in families for quite some time. So it's not even just about the individual patient. There's a longer trust building that happens. Yes, which isn't something that we hear a lot about, but that is definitely the case. We had more than one uh, woman in our study who told us that the reason why they trust their doctor is because she was also their mother's doctor or because she's been there or he's been their doctor since you know, uh, since I was a child. And yeah, so those that length of relationship seems to be a, a way to build trust and a way to measure trust. That's something we didn't really see as much of in white women. And also that trust, when women tell us that they love their specialists, they tell us they love their specialists for different reasons. So they love their specialists because they have specialized information that women want. They love their primary care providers because they trust their primary care providers. But the downside of that, which I'm Certainly, there are many upsides to having a wonderful long-term primary care provider who you trust. One downside is that, at least at the moment, we know that primary care providers are less likely to provide information about cancer risk for many different reasons. Um, it's certainly not anything, I don't think, ill-meaning on their part. I think it has to do with training and time and confidence in quite complex information about uh, cancer risk and what one can do about it. But this might be a really ideal place to intervene if, if primary care providers are where we have access, where women have access, and uh, they're not currently providing information that might really be helpful, then maybe helping those primary care providers figure out how to, to provide that information could be a nice opportunity. This seems to point in two directions from a policy perspective. One is um, increased education for primary care providers about these various different kinds of issues and maybe some increased training. The other one is obviously more access to specialists for African-American women, but also trust building in that area as well. 
Right. I think that's right. And it's a fine line here, right? Because we would like, and I think there is an opportunity for primary care providers to become more educated and more confident uh, and, and perhaps to build in time and space into their practices, uh, which are more policy level issues, um, to be able to address cancer risk with women who are facing that. But on the flip side, we don't want to make primary care providers responsible for acting like oncologists, right? As you said, there are things that oncologists know, that's why they're oncologists, right? We want oncologists to be there to provide that specialized information. And we don't expect our primary care providers to be that. But you know, fundamental to the concept of uh, of primary care is the idea that this is the person who takes sort of a bottom line buck stops here kind of responsibility for your health. That does not mean they treat everything that you might be dealing with. It means that when it's necessary to send you to a specialist, they make the call. Oh, you know what, I think maybe a specialist would be helpful here. And then they watch out and see, like, how are you doing with your specialist? And, you know, when is it time for you to come back? And also, by the way, while you were dealing with your cancer with your oncologist, I just want to remind you that we also want to check your cholesterol, <laughs> right? That like, because we haven't done that in a little while. So those are the types of ways that specialty care and primary care could intersect in a really positive way. And that might involve a little bit more building of these connections uh, in, in ways that we have Certainly, they're not brand new on our radar, but our current um, methods of practice have these specialties relatively siloed. So here in Ohio, we have not the worst, but not the best cancer statistics in the country. We're a little towards the high side. Right. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about Ohio specifically and thinking about, you know, we also have extraordinary racial inequity, um, zip codes rather than genetic codes. And mm -hmm. we're thinking about the ways in which our communities are built and the cancer numbers seem to reflect this. Can you just spell out for our listeners kind of what what's to be done here? I mean, what, what are some ways which specifically here in Ohio, we might be able to start to bridge the gap and also to increase the rigor of our decision-making in a way that is not racially skewed? Yeah, I, I, those are excellent and large questions. I think that um, it is true that our cancer rates also in breast cancer are a bit worse here uh, than in other states and in the nation as a whole. Also, I think really interesting and important is that the size of our disparity, which is to say, if we just look at breast cancer death rates, let's say, there is a bigger gap between white women and black women um, in Ohio than there is in the country as a whole, which means that, you know, not only do we have slightly worse cancer outcomes, but we have slightly worse disparity. And that is something to be concerned about. Of course, the reason why I'm, you know, started out sort of being interested in all of this is because this is a day and age in which we are starting to understand the very concept of risk and being at risk for something in a way that really hadn't been on our radar a couple of decades ago. And we have science that enables us to do this. So what does that mean in terms of cancer? It means that we have an opportunity to reduce death rates from cancer and reduce disparities by reducing the number of people who get cancer in the first place. And if African-Americans are that much more at risk of getting an aggressive cancer, a late stage, being diagnosed with a late stage cancer, dying from cancer, well, then we should be all the more oriented toward making sure that they have all the information and support that 
could be required to make decisions about risk management. And the high-risk people are the people who know that they may have something to uh, manage. <laughs> and so this is, uh, in, in a positive way, it's an opportunity. And Ohio you know, is an opportunity because it's a place where we have a strong disparity and, and something to solve. And I think that that is is makes it particularly worth addressing here uh, and, and probably a good laboratory for figuring out what are some ways that we can go about making these improvements. And of course, if we focus on uh, making improvements in the populations that need them the most, so say African-American women in a state where they are highly disproportionately affected, we might just get gains that could then be translated into slightly less affected groups and other you know regions where the disparities are not quite as high. Before I uh, started talking with you today, I went back to listen to the Reverend Dr. Calvin Butts in New York talking to his congregants and trying to say, this was with the Obama administration's precision medicine initiative, yeah. trying to say, hey, you know, we have this history um, and it's real. We've been burned. We've been hurt. We've been tested on. But we need to get on board with things like precision medicine. We need to allow our genes to become part of this if we're going to reap the benefits of all this research. I don't know really how to assess where we are with that in, in Ohio today and where we're going. I mean, does your study have anything to say about the kind of on the ground day to day building of trust and how to assess that kind of distrust of medical institutions? Uh, my study doesn't directly address those issues, uh, but I think it is a part of and impacted by the ways in which uh, health sciences are trying to address those issues more generally. So there are two things that I know about, and the reason why I know about them is not so much because I'm studying uh, this particular issue, but because these are things that every healthcare scientist and healthcare practitioner is being educated about like in my whole, you know, universe. So the, for certainly everybody uh, at Ohio State talks about these things all the time. And we are constantly exposed to kind of educational modules about this stuff. And so there's basically two of them. One is on the research side that you were talking about to understand that communities of color have real reasons to be suspicious of medical research. But the research we have on this issue shows us that it is not the case that communities of color cannot be convinced to participate in medical research. If you ask people, do you want to participate in medical research? Uh, they do. They just want to be sure that they will be protected, that they're actually contributing to something that's going to further the greater good and not hurt them, which are the same concerns everybody else has, right? Um, and so recruiting people of color, we now have good examples of scholars who have effectively, uh, over time, recruited people of color to participate in medical research to quite positive effect. And we just need to learn from those examples and remember that this is, in fact, a harder lift than recruiting white people to those same studies and that that effort is worth doing and that we know how to do it. So that's one piece of it. And the other piece is medical education. And I think a lot of medical education these days includes components of diversity, which includes understanding uh, pieces of the history about the interfaces between race and medical care and medical institutions in our country and the ways in which that's been really damaging to the public trust of uh, healthcare providers. And so these are two places in which I know that there are active, very widespread efforts to try to get people in a position to help, namely healthcare providers and researchers, to understand what they need to do differently, such that they do not replicate the problems of the past. And hopefully, the more of us who are out there in the field treating patients and running studies without replicating those problems, the more, you know, that history will start to fade into the background, such that someday we're not hearing a story of 
I don't trust doctors because this happened to me, this happened to my mother, and this happened to my uncle, and I heard about this that happened in the town over. But more like I heard that 50 years ago, you know, there was a study where this happened, and you know, yeah. that's an old story. As a qualitative researcher myself, I'm obviously very sympathetic to the. It's it's amazing. I mean, the radical idea of just talking to people. <laughs> And saying, tell me how you think about this. What is, what is your decision-making process? Yeah. What are your anxieties? What are the things that you're concerned about? But also the way we treat history, sometimes in medical education, you know, I worry that sometimes we reduce the whole of trust to a couple of anecdotes about Tuskegee yes. and a few things here and there, rather than think about the broader systems of power and the relationships that people have with medical institutions and to try to really think about it more holistically and one of the ways in which that becomes important also, and your study kind of points to this at the end, I mean, in your limitations, as you talk about, you really can't say much about other groups, but you would like to someday, perhaps, for example, understand how Latinas are affected yeah. uh, by these different kinds of processes, or think intersectionally around LGBT or in a more class-based way. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit uh, in concluding here uh, about as a qualitative researcher, where does this go? I mean, what, what are some of the pieces that we need? Maybe not just qualitative, but mixed methods and quantitative as well. I mean, wh what, what do we need as researchers? Where are the gaps that um, we need to start filling for next steps? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can answer that question sort of both generally and, and specifically. I think the general uh, answer to the question of what we, what we all need and where the big gaps are is that uh, certainly there are many gaps as there always are and in some way science is about you know we'll answer one question and create three more <laughs> um but <laughs> the one of the big gaps is exactly in this space of understanding how people come to use the medical care that is available so if you develop a treatment for an illness who has access to that treatment who's paying for that who you know who do the doctors in your area know about it and and can patients afford it? Is insurance covering it? Uh, it which is a U.S. specific question. But um, and then with respect to things like you know breast cancer prevention, there's a, all of those questions about like how, how do you make choices about whether these kind of complex things you could do to reduce your risk are right for you. So it's not just about the science of figuring out how do we intervene, what drug do we give people, what surgery do we do, but once we have those things. Uh, and this is where the social scientists come in, right, is in the behavioral scientists. Once we have those things, how are they available to people? How are they usable in such a way that they can actually have their maximum effect? So I think that is a big area, and I'm not the only one who thinks so, and certainly there's a burgeoning uh, cadre of people who are doing research like this to try to understand those big pieces. In terms of our specific research, we are moving in, in a couple of new, well, several new directions. Um, the ones that are sort of the furthest along we actually have a survey in the field right at the moment where we are asking African-American and white women to do an online survey where they answer questions that came directly out of the study that produced this paper that you and I are talking about today. Uh, so that was a, a you know qualitative study trying to expose from women's own perspectives, how do they feel? We now think we have a bunch of ideas about what's going on and we've translated that into something that can be measured on a survey so that we can ask a lot more women to contribute to that understanding in a more... Uh, efficient way using, you know, check boxes and multiple choice questions. Um, and so that's in the field right now. Uh, and the other one is uh, that, as you said, we really want to know how this is affecting and these issues are playing out among women other than whites and African-Americans. And so we are launching another study to 
basically repeat what we did in terms of long in-depth interviews to understand women's own points of view with uh, Latinas and Asian American women. Well, one of the goals I had in starting this podcast was to see if we could translate a little bit of, you know, even a slice of the great research being done here in Ohio. We have fantastic researchers doing important work, and you've gotten quite a bit of media attention around this, which is awesome. And I hope that will continue. So thank you to you and your colleagues for doing this important research. And thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. I appreciate it. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Kyle Rosenberger. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. As always, we welcome your emails to prognosisohio at gmail.com and your tweets and follows to at prognosisohio. Your feedback is appreciated and helpful. If you have ideas for themes and guests, we'd also love to hear them. See you next time.